Well, I want to say hello again to everyone in this room and joining us online. We are so glad that you are here today. We're wrapping up this series called Being Lost and Found, and uh, we've been taking a look at this story that's often referred to as the story of the prodigal son, which is really the story of two sons, the younger and the older. And these two sons represent two ways of being lost, two ways of being alienated from God. We've been ruminating on this idea that there are two different ways that we can be lost. And today we're going to wrap it up by talking about three things. Firstborns, mercy, and our divided world. So that's where we're headed. Firstborns, mercy, and our divided world. Let's start first with firstborns. Uh, often firstborn children get the reputation for being the rule followers in the family. Not always the case, but they often get that reputation. Uh, sometimes they get the reputation of not being quite as fun-loving as their younger siblings, but followers of the rule, rules. And the elder brother in this story uh, fits that. He is a rule follower. He stays home. He does the right thing. And in this story, we see that he is lost even though he's following all the rules. And what Jesus really exposes in the elder brother, what Jesus is exposing about the elder brother is that he has failed at the greatest responsibility that he had, and that was to be compassionate. The elder brother had failed in his greatest responsibility, which was compassion. And the funny thing about compassion is that we all think that we have it. We all think we're loving, compassionate people until someone annoys us. But that is actually the moment of truth. That is the litmus test. Sky Jathani says this, the narcissist loves only himself. The nationalist loves only his tribe. The activist loves only his cause. The idealist loves only his thoughts. The humanist loves only his concept of humanity. The Christian? The Christian loves the irritating person right in front of him. And the elder brother in this story that Jesus told does many things right, but he fails in the most important thing which is compassion. The elder brother's actions would have actually seemed crazy among the first century Jews. Like the elder brother, his, his inheritance was secure. In fact, he would have received a larger inheritance than his younger brother. According to Jewish law at that time, we read in Deuteronomy 2 that the elder received more. It says he must acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That was the Jewish law at that time. And so this elder brother would have actually received two-thirds of his father's estate. And along with that larger inheritance came greater responsibility for the elder brother. The oldest son had the responsibility of protecting the family's honor. His younger sibling had become lost, and it would have been his job to seek him out. His younger sibling had become a slave, and it was his responsibility, the responsibility of the elder brother at that time, to redeem him, 
So Jesus's contemporaries listening to this story would have thought, this is ridiculous. The elder son has no reason to feel insecure about his inheritance. He was disconnected from his family. He was disconnected from his obligations to his family and to love. Think for a moment with me about all the examples of elder brothers in scripture. If you sort of track and think about elder brothers, firstborns throughout the Bible, it's kind of an interesting theme. Like usually in biblical families that we read about in the Bible, being the firstborn, being the eldest was kind of a bad sign. I mean, think about it. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. That's like the first human family. And then you've got Abraham's family line, and the youngest son in that family gets the recognition. Isaac is second born to Ishmael. Isaac, the baby of a family, is blessed. Ishmael is disowned. Jacob is chosen over Esau. Joseph is the youngest son of Jacob, and he's like his father's favorite. He is the one through whom God saves the world from famine. And then think about David. David is the youngest son of Jesse. God chooses him to be the next king. And then when David grows and he has sons, the oldest sons wind, wind up fighting each other, killing one another, even trying to usurp his throne. But the younger son, Solomon, is chosen as his heir. So when Jesus tells this story, this story of two sons, it's interesting because the portrayal of the elder son in this parable kind of fits right along with the Bible's portrayal of the oldest son. But here is what is so interesting. Then the Bible goes on to describe Jesus Christ as firstborn in Romans 8 goes on to describe Jesus Christ as our eldest brother in Hebrews 2. So why is Jesus honored as firstborn when so many other firstborns in the Bible seem to be rejected? It's because Jesus is our true elder brother, the elder brother that we need. Unlike the elder brother in this parable, Christ shows compassion for the prodigal sons and daughters of the world, extending us mercy, willingly embracing the party that unfolds in heaven every time one lost, wayward child comes home. Unlike the elder brother in this story, the parable of the prodigal son, under, unlike the elder brother in this story, who failed in his main responsibility to be compassionate, Christ has never failed in being compassionate. It's like over and over and over in the Bible, we see the firstborn in the family needing saving. And then along comes this firstborn son of God who does the saving. So in that way, Christ is like our true elder brother, like the elder brother we all need. And the main failure in this parable of the elder brother, the main failure in Jesus' story, is a failure of compassion. Like when it came to morality and doing the right thing, he, did, he was great. 
when it came to duty and obligation and moral correctness and staying home and staying doing the right thing, he was amazing. But when his younger brother ran away, he didn't care. When his younger brother was lost, he didn't care. When his younger brother came home, not only did he not care, but he was resentful of the welcome that his father gave to this younger sibling. The elder brother had a life that appeared good, but a heart that was full of sin. And he is like a warning to all of us that we can be religious on the outside, but be actually very lost. One time when Jesus was teaching about what life in the kingdom of God looks like, Jesus taught that life in God's kingdom looks like love for enemy. Love for your enemy. Now, for the elder brother in this story, his younger brother had become like his enemy. And I want to ask you right now, who's your enemy? Well, no, really. Like, who, who is your enemy? Can you bring to mind someone? Perhaps the most common enemy in our divided world right now is either a relational enemy or a political enemy, if we're honest. Someone who disagrees with you. So let me get like really concrete for you. Don't think about the person sitting next to you, but think about you. Who's your political enemy? If you're conservative, it's probably a liberal person. If you're liberal, it's probably a conservative person. Who's your political enemy? Now consider this. Jesus said to love your enemy. Love of enemy is a mark of one who resides in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Author Dallas Willard actually said it like this. Spiritual maturity is expressed in spontaneous love for the enemy. Think about that for a minute. Spiritual maturity is expressed in spontaneous love for the enemy. Now, if something is spontaneous, it's like a sudden inner impulse. It's an inclination. It's somewhat automatic. It's just like the unconscious response. It's like the first thought that you have. And this season in our world right now, it's revealing, isn't it? It's revealing. I mean, it is interesting what is being exposed in me. I don't know about you. I mean, if I'm honest, what I would say is being exposed in me is often more like spontaneous disdain, spontaneous annoyance, spontaneous anger, spontaneous anxiety, spontaneous like lectures in my head for those I disagree with, spontaneous sense of superiority, spontaneous fear sometimes, judgment, a spontaneous sort of againstness, 
but spontaneous love? What a rare gift. Jesus said, love your enemy. Spiritual maturity is expressed in spontaneous love for the enemy. Now, there are so many things I am not 100% certain of, but I would say, like, I'm 100% certain that everybody in this room and joining us online will die physically one day. And people will stand up at your funeral and they will say things about your life. And on that day, I doubt very many will talk about your political views today. I doubt many will quote you on your political rants. Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And if that is true, that how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, it is worth our asking right now, how am I spending my days? What's the meditation of my heart these days? I don't know about you, but so many of my conversations right now are just like devolving into politics, devolving into listening to people's political rants. And I think that is because politics is like the meditation of so many hearts right now. Sometimes, um, you know, I just think like, as a pastor, my primary concern is for our spiritual formation. And spiritual formation is an interesting phrase. A lot of times people will think like, oh, spiritual formation is for the super deep Christians, like the people who are like really into their faith. But the reality is everybody, even those who do not believe in God at all, everybody is getting a spiritual formation. The question is just, what is forming you spiritually? What is forming your soul? What is forming your spontaneous response to your enemy? If you're a follower of God in the way of Jesus, going to church alone will not form you into Christ's likeness. Because here's the thing, we're here together in worship for like one hour a week. If you come every week, we're here together one hour a week. But let me ask you, what are the other hours of your week spent meditating on? What is the meditation of your heart in those other days? How many hours are you being formed by the news, by media, by the scroll of your social media feed? Is that like one hour a day, two hours a day, more? If there was like a scale that could show what is forming you right now, would there be more formation for your soul happening from the media or from spiritual practices like prayer, meditation, scripture, and worship. See, everybody is being formed. Everybody is getting a spiritual formation. The only question is, what's forming you? What's forming your soul? What's shaping your spontaneous responses? And if it's not God's Holy Spirit, if you sort of just allow the forces of this world to shape you, then your spontaneous response to your enemy will not be love. 
here's the thing. Spiritual maturity, it is not expressed through right doctrine as the elder brother thought. Spiritual maturity is not expressed through moral correctness as the elder brother thought, as important as these things are. Spiritual maturity is not expressed through church attendance. And let's also be sure to say spiritual maturity is not expressed through passionately advocating for your cause. Whatever your cause may be, even those apart from Christ do that. Spiritual maturity is expressed in a spontaneous love for the enemy. Spontaneous love, like what a rare gift. What an unusual way. You know, to show up in the world so spacious in your being, so spacious that you actually, you're not bothered by the way the other one can rub. You're not annoyed by the way the other one can rub you wrong. Like, can you contain in yourself, like, is there room in you for a difference of opinion? Can you be the one who is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry with your enemy? Are you a person who is surrounded by a cushion that just kind of, you know, it just softly receives the surrounding world, even those that disagree with you? My friend Becca says this. She, she says, I think that space, that room, that sort of cushion is what the Bible calls mercy. Mercy is about moving through life with just a posture of pardon, even before there's an offense. Mercy is like a million little acts of forgiveness every day, all the time. Dom Basil Pennington says this, love responds to what is good and lovable, but mercy, mercy responds to what is not good and makes it good and lovable. Now hear me when I say, I am not advocating for the allowance of injustice. Mercy and justice are both part and parcel, both a part of following God in the way of Jesus. What I'm talking about right now, when we're talking about like developing a cushion of mercies, I'm talking about those little offenses throughout our days. Like that stuff that just pings you, pings your false self, the stuff that kind of puts you on the defensive, the stuff that drives you crazy, makes you sort of like kick in to that rebuttal in your mind, that impassioned response, that rant. I'm talking about the stuff that triggers inside of us that fight or flight or freeze kind of response. I'm talking about the stuff that has a way of bringing out the elder brother in you. The stuff that brings about your self-righteousness. What if 
we began to like put on a cushy coat of mercy each morning and began to receive people and experiences that rub us wrong as an invitation to practice, to practice mercy. An invitation to forgive over and over and over again until what is left becomes this like spontaneous impulse to love. Proverbs 17.9 says, whoever would foster love covers over an offense. Mercy is like, it's just this posture of pardon, even before there's an offense. It's the covering over offense by fostering love. And it actually has the power to make what is not good, good and lovable. Like, mercy has the power to transform. This week, I was just writing down in my journal this question. What are the things that foster a cushion of mercy and love in me? I was just, like, getting really practical. And I wrote down three things. I wrote down endorphins, connection, and margin. I mean, simply put, it's like, when my body is hydrated, when I have moved, when I've, like, embraced some good nutrition, like, I just feel like my cushion of mercy is a little, bit, a little bit greater. And connection, when I am with people whom I feel safe and known and, like, my home team people, where I have a, a feeling of belonging, it increases my cushion of mercy and love towards others. And for me, margin, like, with time, with money, I mean, when I'm overextended, my cushion of mercy and love, it just shrinks. So I would ask you, what are the things that grow your cushion of mercy and love? Because here's the thing. Today is August 30th. And on November 3rd, we will have an election in this country. So for the next 65 days, you will be given many opportunities to practice spontaneous love for your enemy, your ideological enemy, whoever that may be. You will have many opportunities to be shown um, what's really in your heart. It's easy to come to church and sing, sing that our lives are all about love, but for the next 65 days, we will have many opportunities to see, to be revealed what's really in my heart. And if you're anything like me, you will not always like what you see. Rather than spontaneous love, you will find in your heart spontaneous anger, spontaneous disdain, spontaneous judgment. And every single week, you can bring those very things that are exposed in you to the table of communion. Every single week, you can bring to the table of communion where we confess together and we receive mercy so that we might extend mercy. Our culture does not encourage a cushion of mercy, does not encourage spontaneous love for enemy. Like everything in our world right now is going to tell you to fuel your spontaneous anger for the other, whoever that is. 
everything in our culture right now is going to say, throw a little gasoline on your hatred, on your anger. Everything in our world right now is going to say, it is actually weakness for you to be quick to listen. Like now is the time to speak your mind, advocate for your cause. But friends, don't be fooled. We live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom is not in trouble. That kingdom is more present and it is more real than any empire. There is another way. There's another way to live. There is another kingdom. And it's not anxious. And it's not in danger. And it is not threatened by whoever becomes president. And there are values in this kingdom that you can live by for the next 65 days. And you're probably not going to hear much about them in the news. Probably not going to hear much about them in your social media feed. But they are good. And they are true. And they are beautiful. And they build a kingdom that is more real and is more present than any kingdom of this world. And to live in that kingdom is to live with the Father. To live in that kingdom is to be generous like the Father who welcomes both sons home. To live in that kingdom is to live in such a way that mercy and forgiveness and pardon are shown especially to the other, especially to the enemy. So may you see the next 65 days as an opportunity to see your own heart, an opportunity to practice loving your enemy, and may you show up to this table of communion each week with an awareness of your own need for God's mercy. May you then receive God's mercy and grace in Christ Jesus right here. May you receive your nourishment here in the bread and in the wine. And may you receive a vision for this kingdom. And then may we all turn around and extend that mercy, that life, that vision to everyone that we meet in our divided world. Would you pray together with me as we close? I invite you to join me in reading the words of this prayer of confession as we come to the table of communion. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.